this panel's topic, whether Chevron or a similar deference rule is inevitable, stems from maybe two basic facts. First, the English language allows Congress to express its intent more or less ambiguously. That's not to say that language is always ambiguous, but it allows for drafters to use as much ambiguity as they wish when codifying Congress's intent, including ambiguity that results from the failure to speak, from silence. Second, Congress likes to delegate. It routinely gives unelected agency officials the power to create consequential and politically sensitive policy. Congress could stop delegating so much, and it could often draft more clearly, but without a meaningful non-delegation doctrine, that's unlikely to happen. So what are courts to do? We can only decide specific cases that come before us, and we take the statutes as they come to us. Does that make deference inevitable? Well, our panelists will unambiguously attempt to answer that question. Uh, we're just going to go in order, and I'm not going to give you the full uh, bio that's in your program, but I am going to mention um, their clerkships because I think that's relevant. Since our panel, in part at least, isn't making sort of normative arguments about what courts should do, it's making predictive judgments about courts, about what courts do and would do if Chevron were to evaporate, you know, later this year. Dan Walters is a, and so their judicial, as it were, judicial experience as law clerks, you know, is sort of relevant to making those factual predictive judgments. Dan Walters is a professor at Texas A&M University School of Law. He clerked for Judge uh, Margaret McCune on the Ninth Circuit. John Duffy is a professor at UVA and uh, clerked for Stephen Williams on the DC Circuit and for Justice Scalia. And uh, Professor Bressman is at Vanderbilt University. She clerked for uh, Judge Cabranes and for Justice Breyer. I want to mention she's co-author with um, Abby Gluck of the, the two-part articles, Statutory Interpretation from the Inside, which have been influential in this, you know, in this space. So uh, Professor Bressman, please take it away. Thank you so much. Thanks for that nice introduction. Thanks to everybody for coming and for the invitation to present here. Um, the last panel is a hard one to follow, um, especially because we're in the position here of predicting the future. Um, I won't make jokes about predictions and how uh, predictive they are. Instead, I will just take that as the motivating question and offer some remarks about uh, where I think uh, course, lower courts um, might go after Loper Bright, after Relentless, whatever it gets called. What I think, what I predict, maybe what I hope, uh, is that whatever rule Loper Bright announces or ushers in, that the decision ultimately may have less practical effect in the lower courts than we might expect. And to begin, it's important to note that Loper Bright, and I'm just gonna refer to it as Loper Bright, is unlikely to change how lower courts approach typical cases at all. Let me tell you about typical cases. This is not an empirical paper, um, but like Kent and Chris, I've read a lot of opinions um, from lower courts, so this is a truly a guess. Nevertheless, in the typical case, um, which, is, which I describe as involving 
the routine, often specialized questions that agencies decide in the normal course of implementing their statutes. Um, elsewhere, I call these ordinary questions. And I think rather than focusing on major questions and what falls into that box, we ought to consider the large range, the countless number of ordinary questions that lower courts confront. In cases involving ordinary questions, judges will search for the meaning of imprecise or broad statutory language no differently than they did before. They will examine the relevant statutory text, the purpose, the structure, and the context using the same interpretive tools and the same methodologies as they did before. And that means that textualists will continue to excel at finding clear meaning. Justice Scalia reminded us of that long ago. Or they will find clear enough meaning, as Justice Gorsuch has said more recently. Um, and textualism may well be ascendant among lower courts, or um, as you know, there are more of the methodology on the bench. Or it may uh, become more dominant simply because lower courts take their cue uh, from the Supreme Court and that methodology. Step one, statutory interpretation will remain basically the same. Now, all courts begin every opinion by asking whether the agency has authority to decide a particular issue or reach a particular subject. Well, they certainly will if Loper Bright instructs them to do so. But even here, the authority question, the answer, is likely to be yes if the question of statutory interpretation is non-major and arises under imprecise or broad statutory language. That's just how congressional delegation works. Congress leaves the details to the agency, even many important ones. Moreover, courts may be uncertain how to answer the authority question other than through standard statutory interpretation. So they will continue to reach for their interpretive toolkits to determine whether the agency's interpretation is authorized or whether the, whether the relevant statutory language precludes that interpretation or requires another. The authority question might well look differently in cases like Loper-Bright, and I won't go into detail about cases like Loper-Bright, um, except to note that it's a legislative silence case. Uh, legislative silence has never been particularly reliable in statutory interpretation, so we may well see a difference there. But I want to talk about the run-of-the-mill cases, the typical cases. When courts do not find clear meaning or clear enough meaning for the relevant statutory language in these typical cases, the next question, step two, they will decide if the agency's interpretation ought to prevail. That's what they do. That's what they're asked to do. That's what judicial review is. They will evaluate the agency's interpretation in view of statutory sources, including the text, the purpose, the structure, the context. They will consider whether the agency's interpretation reflects considered informed judgment. We've heard about this already. Um, was the interpretation reached through a formalized process? Has it been consistently held? Does it rely on expertise? Is it well-reasoned? And here's the bottom line. The more specialized the interpretation along these dimensions, the more likely the court will be to agree with it. And that's not for any reason other than that's long been the rule from Skidmore versus Swift. That case was decided four decades before Chevron. 
And these considerations are basically the ones that have woven themselves into various steps under Chevron. So when courts are determining whether Chevron applies at all to the agency's interpretation under so-called step zero, whether the relevant statutory language is clear or clear enough to unambiguously at the agency's interpretation at step one, whether the interpretation is reasonable under step two, these questions arise. Of course, the difference is that when courts defer to the agency's interpretation under Chevron at the end of all this, they accorded the agency's interpretation controlling weight. And that makes a difference. So it turns out, as they shared with us, um, that agency interpretations are significantly more likely to prevail under Chevron deference than under Skidmore deference, and especially under de novo review. So deference matters. It also matters in another way that we've touched upon. Deference per se prevents agencies from losing only in the short term. Only Chevron deference presents, prevents them from losing interpretive authority for the future. So even when a court defers to the agency, only gives the agency's interpretation the power to persuade, and it decides the relevant question, not the agency. The issue of institutional um, authority doesn't matter much. It doesn't matter always. It doesn't matter much in particular when the agency's interpretation is longstanding, when the statutory language requires a determinate meaning and it's not likely to change. Then the precise level of deference doesn't make that much difference. And this is something that Justice Breyer observed in 1989 before he took um, his position on the Supreme Court. But usually, in the typical cases to which I refer, the ordinary questions cases, deference matters a lot. Agencies need the flexibility to modify, replace, rescind their interpretations if underlying circumstances change, whether those circumstances are scientific, technical, economic, social, or political. This flexibility is the hallmark of the administrative state. That's a quote, it comes from Justice Scalia. An agency that lacks interpretive authority will have to take its chances of persuading the reviewing court to bless any new interpretation, plain and simple. My prediction is that deference of the controlling variety is unlikely to disappear after Loper Bright, even if the court shuts down Chevron and requires de novo review for questions of law. The reason is that judges may feel conflicted, conflicted about deciding a question independently when deference matters the most. And that's when, in these typical cases, the interpretive dispute comes down to a policy disagreement. These cases tend to have common features. First, the relevant statutory language neither prohibits the agency's interpretation nor requires another. Second, the agency's interpretation is specialized in a concrete, identifiable sense. So, it involves the evaluation of empirical studies or statistical data. It involves fact-finding based on experience with the statutory scheme. It involves the selection or application of decision-making methods. It involves the identification of discretionary factors relevant to the decision. Or it involves the choice between or among policy options. Judges know 
that these are not the sort of matters that they normally review de novo, and not just because Chevron said so. These factors come right out of State Farm, that other case. State Farm, which tells courts not to substitute their judgment for that of the agency. And the Supreme Court has continued to reiterate that message in full. State Farm is an elaboration of the arbitrary and capricious test of the APA, but it establishes strong norms of judicial behavior. And Chevron enforced those norms for 40 years. If Chevron is no longer available to enforce those norms, judges may begin to consider whether consciously or subconsciously whether State Farm should step up. But differently, judges may begin to ask whether the agency interpretation is more appropriately understood as a policy decision to which State Farm applies. Now that's not step two plus State Farm. What that is is a choice between doctrinal regimes. Is this a Chevron case or is this a State Farm case? Lower courts have not had to think that much about it. Chevron bossed its way to the front of the room, and so courts applied it. And in doing so, Chevron became the dominant doctrine. And there was absolutely no harm in that when Chevron and State Farm pointed in the same direction. Now, that doctrinal regime choice is the difference between, possibly, de novo review and deferential review under the arbitrary and capricious test. And that choice is going to weigh on judges. Now, many cases are obviously straight up Chevron cases. Nobody would disagree that they involve statutory interpretation. But many cases that involve statutory language are really statutory implementation or policymaking cases. And here's the thing. Chevron has been cited twice as much as State Farm. So twice as many interpretive questions as policy questions under regulatory statutes. And they've both been cited a huge amount, 19,000 to 8,000. But that's a big discrepancy. And this is very, very impressionistic, but so are predictions. What's in that discrepancy? Are there cases in there where the courts defaulted to Chevron instead of asking whether Chevron applies? Are there cases in there where the court hedged its bets and applied both Chevron and State Farm but didn't decide which one applied? We don't know. But the discrepancy prompts questions at the very least. And it may sit with lower courts to decide. Lower courts at the end of the day get to decide the effect of Loper-Bright. And they may moderate its effect if they step back and they think about what they're looking at and whether they really are confronting a Loper-Bright case or a State Farm case. Now, again, predictions, dangerous. Will that happen? Is this just my um, imagination? Well, this short comment is not offered as any kind of apology for overruling Chevron. Uh, for many of the reasons, the stare decisis reasons that we heard in the last panel. What it is to say is that it's not the end of the game, that courts will still have to step back, and they do have the competence to decide 
what sort of case they're looking at, which standard of review applies, and they do not need to accept the party's characterization. That they can review de novo. Now, if courts want to decide cases for the agency or against the agency, they will, but that's not because of Loper-Bright. They could do that under Chevron. Loper-Bright will just be a new tool. So I guess I'll conclude at the end of the day by backing off the idea of prediction. I stick to the idea that statutory interpretation in, in typical cases will pretty much look the same, whatever that means. But I hope in typical cases where statutory interpretation fairly runs out, that lower courts will feel the conflict in appreciation of the norms that have been around for longer than Chevron and think about critically what sort of case they're looking at. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Professor Duffy. Thank you very much. And thank you for those remarks because I think they lead naturally into my remarks. I think I agree with the view that um, a change and even a change to de novo review, which I support, um, is might not make as much difference as people make because Congress delegates a lot of power to some agencies. Um, but if I had to say what's really wrong with Chevron, uh, and I articulated this in an article some years ago, I'd say that it's similar, but it's completely, it's on a completely different track. Um, as Tom Merrill said, and I said this in the article, it's like Chevron is judge-made common law about how we should handle administrative review of agency actions. On, but there is a statute, a comprehensive statute that the court has said over and over again should be the basis of all judicial review. And I think that statutory framework, which is the APA, of course, lays out a very clear framework for evaluating Chevron uh, and other cases, including the Loper-Bright case. And I'll take your convention, um, although one might say maybe you should say it's Loper-Bright if they overrule Chevron, because I think it would be a bright spot. It's relentless if they affirm Chevron, because it would just it just keeps coming at you. So maybe that should be the decision that they use in, in, in judging the caption. Um, but but I, I think that if you look at Chevron itself, there is a pretty clear way to evaluate it. And I will say on the stare decisis question, um, I don't think that this is stare decisis because the key question is what does the APA mean? And the APA wasn't even cited to the court in the, in the merits briefing. Um, and I think there is law about stare decisis. L stare decisis law says explicitly, this is Supreme Court precedent, questions which, uh, which merely lurk in the record, neither brought to the attention to the court nor ruled upon, are not to be considered as having been so decided um, as to constitute precedence. So the crucial question is, what does the APA mean? And I'm assuming that in a choice between judge-made common law and statutes, the statute actually should prevail. This is a common thing that happened in judicial review in the late 20th century, that the courts just treated the issue as an issue of common law, that they can make up the law. That's changing now, and I think a, a watershed case, and this is in my earlier article, is Darby versus Cisneros, which dealt with the exhaustion doctrine, and the court expressed surprise that, gee, this, this issue about the meaning of a provision of the APA has you know, been unnoticed for 40 years, and the leading commentator on, the, um, on, the, uh, on administrative law in the mid-20th century, the leading treatise writer, said this is traditionally ignored by courts. The, the, the statute simply ignored 
ordered by courts. And I must say that was true in that case. It was absolutely true. The amazing thing is the lower court uh, ruling in that case never mentioned the precedent, never mentioned, pardon me, the statute. And you might think like, oh, well, you know, the parties didn't cite the statute. In that case, you go down, if you were to call for the record and look at the briefs, you'd find that that was their number one argument that they devoted the bulk of their appellate brief to. And the court ruled as if it just didn't exist. The Supreme Court reversed unanimously and said the statute controls, not the judge-made common law. And I think that's what the court should do here. The court should um, evaluate Chevron and evaluate the doctrine using the APA. That's what should replace Chevron. I have a very clear answer as to what should replace Chevron, and it's, and it's, and it's the APA. And I think the APA framework works very nicely. Here's three specific things that are really wrong with Chevron. Uh, first, uh, the court said that uh, it, it treated the issue as a matter of interpretation. That's not at all what was going on in Chevron. And I encourage people to look at the actual rule that was signed into regulations by Ann Gorsuch. By the way, that's a little factoid that most people, some people in DC know, but I think it's a fun thing. It's Justice Gorsuch's mom who signed the order in Chevron. Um, and I think it's legal under, you know, obviously it was sustained, the legality of it was sustained unanimously by the court. I think, I think the order is legal under the APA too. Um, that rule defines stationary source. We often say sort of generally, oh, it's a bubble concept. The word bubble doesn't appear in the regulation. And here's the regulation. It says, look, in order for this to be the same source, they have to, we're gonna group all the pollution admitting activities which belong to the same industrial grouping or located on contiguous or adjacent properties or controlled by the same person or persons under com common control. Let me tell you, that is a lot of detail. You can't look up a dictionary for source or stationary source and get all that detail. And as if to top it off, you might say, what is an industrial grouping? Well, the regulation tells you. A, a, an industrial grouping is the one that's a major group, uh, which means the same two-digit code as described in the Standard Industrial Classification Manual 1972, as amended in its 1977 supplement. There's no way a court would ever come up with this complex a definition uh, if it was engaged in what we know as interpretation. They would never look to some 1972 as updated in 1977 uh, industrial grouping to try and sort of put these, uh, to put sources together. It's just too complex. This is an act of legislative rulemaking, which of course it was. Um, so it's really about the question, the, the correct question is not interpretation, it's about the exercise of delegated lawmaking power. Um, and the second thing I'd say is that um, the, uh, the court says, another major thing that I think the court says that is, is just really misleading, so the court says sometimes legislative delegation to an agency on a particular question is implicit rather than explicit. This again has nothing to do with Chevron. Chevron, the EPA, had an explicit rulemaking authority that was quoted in, its, in the brief by DOJ by defending the agency in full right up towards the front end of the brief because that is the predicate to engage in this. It's not interpretive power, it's legislative rulemaking power that's essential to write this complex definition of source and that's clearly what Congress wanted because after all, if you leave a crucial, def a crucial term in the statute that the agency 
agency needs to know a definition of um, in order to begin licensing, then, and you give the agency a rulemaking power, this is an obvious target for something that simply has to be defined. And then finally, the court said, and this is often summarized, and if you look at the language of the opinion, it's, it's a little more nuanced, but the judges are not experts in the field, neither, neither are they part of um, the, uh, either political branch of, of government. And this is often summarized in sort of what is Chevron to say, well, agencies uh, are per to be preferred because judges, because they have expertise in political accountability. Um, I think those are decent reasons that Congress may want to give an agency uh, significant delegation of power, but not always. Um, so for example, the area of regulation that I study and, and have a case book in is the patent system. That's unusual for administrative law people. They often look at environmental law. But if you look at the patent system, Chevron has never applied even to core terms in the patent statute that are very, very hard to define and occupy lots and lots of case law, like what is a non-obvious invention? That's crucial. That's considered the crucial gatekeeper to getting a patent. Um, the courts never defer on that. And yet the agency has political accountability. It's in the Department of Commerce. The head of the agency is nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Um, go see Arthrex if you want to know more about the agency. But it has tremendous political accountability. And talk about agency expertise in an area that's both legally and technologically complex. I mean, that would seem to be the bullseye of where Chevron should apply. It doesn't. Why? Why not? Because Congress chose not to make this agency powerful. It didn't give it delegated lawmaking authority, generally. That's true historically. You could write a whole article on this, because I have. Um, but, but, but the thing is that you know sometimes agencies, or Congress, makes choices about how much power to give a particular agency. And, they, and this, this, um, this, this metric about uh, political accountability and expertise is not necessarily a good guide. Crucial to my thesis is it is a congressional question how much power to give an agency. And it's true that the EPA had a lot of power um, and could define stationary source um, reasonably. Um, but, um, and that means that the order was legal, but the analysis is just completely sideways to the statute. If you want to know more detail, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting is why didn't people cite the a APA? Um, DOJ didn't cite it because, you know, it does, they, they weren't so wild about it. They knew that, I, I, one might think they knew that there was some danger in that first sentence that says courts shall decide all issues of law. And, and if you look at the legislative history and other things, if you look at judicial precedents that bother to interpret se Section 706, they were relatively uniform, saying it's de novo review. Um, the petitioner, uh, so the respondents, DOJ didn't say it. The respondents actually, in or their amici at the cert stage, actually uh, cited 706. But they cited the arbitrary and capricious test, actually. And they said something really interesting. They said, boy, this the DC Circuit is really beginning to have this, this, um, this test uh, that's very stringent. Um, see this State Farm case in the lower court that they've done this awful thing of overturning an agency. And of course, that was 1983, um, in the spring of 1983, the cert gets granted in Chevron in, in May of 1983. In June of 1983, the State Farm decision comes out and, and, and affirms 
the D.C. Circuit's overturning of the agency rule there. So suddenly the respondent, or pardon me, the petitioners realize, gee, Section 706 may not have some great stuff in it for us. We're going to stay away from it. It's not clear why the respondents didn't cite Section 706. I think as a strategic matter, they um, maybe they you know thought that a common law approach to this was, was the way to go. They spent most of their brief trying to explain the complex statutory system uh, to the court, and they might have thought that that was their best uh, their best thing to do. I think the way the court should have decided it is, uh, is, is the following way, and I think this is straightforward. This is just following the APA. First, they should have looked at the agency action and realized this is the legislative rule. This is not about interpretation. You don't get all these details without actually legislating. Um, then you have to go to a, a provision that people don't often go to, which is 558B, which says that agencies can issue legislative rules um, in jurisdiction delegated to the agency and as authorized by law. So in order to have a legislative rule, you not only need to, it to be in the general jurisdiction of the agency, like the patent system is within the jurisdiction of the PTO, you need to have some authorization by law. If they looked at the, at the Clean Air Act, they'd find it. They'd find the general rulemaking power that the uh, EPA administrator had. And they would, they would look at that statute in looking for the delegation. They would be exercising de novo review. They find the delegation, well, then they turn to Section 706-2A and the arbitrary and capricious test. They say, this agency does have the power to write rules, pretty broad power, pretty unencumbered power to write rules. Is this rule reasonable and reasonably, does it, is it a, a reflection of reasoned decision making, which is something that the State Farm case had just decided. One of the odd things about Chevron is it creates this parallel world. And step two, there's this huge uh, lower court and, and Supreme Court sort of back and forth about, well, how does step two relate to um, the arbitrary and capricious test? And I think you can simplify the law by just saying you have to apply the arbitrary and capricious test. Um, one thing about the, this theory is it actually, by forcing courts to look de novo for the statutes, it actually says, look, there's not simply one mode that Congress delegates power. There's agencies like the PTO that don't have a lot of power to define key substantive ambiguities in their statute. The EEOC is another one, although it's gotten more power as time goes on, so Congress originally wanted it quite powerless and toothless, it's added power. The EPA in Chevron is kind of in the middle. I think that is probably where many agencies lie. And then the interesting thing about this delegation uh, point is that it, um, it explains agencies that have super rulemaking powers, like the FCC uh, and um, the Secretary of Education in the Biden versus Nebraska. It says sometimes agencies can overrule explicit, clear statutory language if they have one of these broad rulemaking powers. Um, and I think that that is, you know, sort of, again, we're focused on delegation, we're focused on how much power uh, Congress has given us, uh, given the agency. And that's a de novo question. And by the way, I, I'm running short on time, but I want to say two more things. That's very similar to not only the, uh, the Chief Justice's view in the city of Arlington, but also Justice Breyer's view in the city of Arlington, both of whom say that the courts have to decide independently delegation. Not jurisdiction. The case that case was sort of brought up in a weird way, and the, the advocate was arguing about jurisdiction. If you look at the uh, Breyer opinion and the Chief Justice's opinion, they talk about delegation. 
Um, so finally, I want to conclude about how this applies in Loper Bright and Relentless. And I really think this is extremely important, um, which is that if you look at this statute, one of the interesting things, the statute that's involved there, is that the statute actually begins in section one, it lays forth principles, and then section 1B, and it's, it's actually 1851 and 1852, or it's, it's section one, two, three, four, in the 1850s, but I'm just gonna say section one of this part of the statute. Says, here are the standards for these fishery plans. B, subsection B, within that first section, says the secretary shall establish advisory guidelines, parenthetical, which shall not have the force and effect of law. That's an unusual thing to see in administrative law. Um, based on national standards, which are the things just uh, uh, applied to assist in the development of these fishery management plans. Very unusual, and I actually went back to the legislative history, which I know is verboten for an ex-Scalia clerk, uh, but I did it anyway. That parenthetical was added by amendment in 1983, and that amendment says, you know, the committee, this is a committee report, intends that the national standards themselves and not the interpretations of such standards as contained in any guidelines are the basis for the adequacy of the particular plan to be judged. Then if you look, so that I think is a huge, really unusual, it's a very good indicator that this agency is on that one side of the spectrum with less deference. Um, and if you go through the other sections, which I don't have time to do, but maybe we can do in the question and answer period, you actually see that they have a very you know, odd uh, notice and comment process where the secretary has to promulgate the rules that are produced by these um, councils, which are staffed with, at best, inferior officers. So to actually think this agency has broad power seems completely contrary to the statute. And I think that's the key thing here. We should look at delegations de novo. And that, in this very case, is the poster child for what's wrong with Chevron. Lots of people have assumed this agency, oh, it has some sort of rulemaking power, so that's good enough. They haven't looked carefully about this agency's delegated power. If you do look closely at its delegated power, you find that it is not like the EPA and should not get a strong form of ability to write powerful rules. Professor Walters. <clears throat> Great. Uh, well, I've very, very much enjoyed the remarks of my co-panelists. I should say at the outset, to be really honest, I, I hesitated to accept the offer to attend this symposium uh, because I was skeptical that there was anything novel that could be said about Chevron. Uh, I mean, it really is well-trodden terrain. Just about everybody has a take on it. And I've tried to resist writing about Chevron. Uh, but I, I couldn't help but be drawn to this for the opportunity to articulate uh, a political scientist version uh, of the Chevron story. I'm half political scientist, half lawyer, uh, so I'm very sympathetic to the power uh, of political science uh, as a predictive model, and that is the goal of this uh, 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 panel. So I want to uh, articulate what a political scientist might think uh, about uh, the Chevron doctrine and its likely future. Uh, and uh, you heard a little bit about the, the political science approach uh, to things on the first panel, the attitudinal and the legal model, and maybe this is a fundamental disagreement that only lawyers uh, are going to align with the legal model and only political scientists are going to align with the attitudinal model. In reality, it's a lot more complex than that. And I want to show you why I think there still is a lot of analytical purchase for more of a combined uh, approach to those two things. So let me launch into it. I think we have to understand that at the very beginning, Chevron was very politically contingent. Okay, it's, it's quite explicit at the outset of the Chevron doctrine. 
And uh, you can see that in Justice Scalia's writings. Uh, before he was even on the bench, he very much acknowledged that Chevron was quite beneficial uh, to the Reagan revolution with, that he uh, anticipated was about to happen. Uh, he talked about how, you know, judges seem painfully unaware uh, that the uh, unelected bureaucrats are now our unelected bureaucrats. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically that. Right? So I think you know, Justice Scalia very much understood the political terrain uh, at the outset of the Reagan revolution and saw Chevron as sort of in line uh, with his policy preferences. I think, uh, as we now know, uh, work that Tom Merrill has done and others uh, have uncovered what I would characterize as a strategic misstep by Judge Wald in uh, uh, cementing the Chevron doctrine, given her preferences, which very much cut in the other direction of Justice Scalia's. She thought, I think uh, mistakenly, that Chevron could be beneficial for more liberal judges at the time. Uh, that turned out to not be entirely true, uh, but it happened to allow uh, Justice Scalia's project of Chevron uh, to take hold. What happened was pretty quickly after the uh, cementing of Chevron deference, the Reagan revolution, of course, somewhat dissipated. I think it's still with us to some degree, but there, we entered a, fear, a period of fierce competition uh, for the presidency, which scrambled some of the predictions that had led Justice Scalia to so confidently say uh, that Chevron was going to be beneficial for his political preferences. So understanding that story, I think, is essential. We can debate the doctrine and the formalistic elements of Chevron all day, uh, but it was born out of uh, a sort of political compromise. So what I want to do in my essay, and what I've tried to do in the draft I submitted, is to try to model this a little bit in the way that a political scientist would do this, thinking about judges as preference maximizers and as efficient allocators of scant resources for deciding cases. Uh, and if you think about it, one of the reasons why Justice Scalia was drawn to Chevron is because it's a kind of shortcut uh, for judges in certain situations. Namely, when there's going to be an alignment between the judge uh, and the agency that is going to produce a rule or a policy that is in alignment with the uh, judge's policy preferences. If that's the case, then the judge need not invest a lot of uh, time and resources to justify the statutory interpretation de novo. They can cite Chevron deference and very quickly move on uh, and uh, basically piggyback on the agency's work. Um, so if you take that model seriously, that judges are trying to maximize their preferences, but they're also trying not to waste effort, Chevron makes a ton of sense in those situations where you've got agencies and courts uh, aligned. Uh, the problem with the shortcut, though, is that it's not always applicable. Right? So sometimes uh, the agencies are going to disagree with judges, namely when you have a new administration coming into town that maybe is misaligned uh, with the judiciary. Uh, in the paper, uh, I argue that the uh, utility of the shortcut is going to depend on the judge's views on two dimensions. Uh, and if it's possible, can I get the slide that I uh, shared up on the screen? So uh, the two dimensions that I identify, and this is a very simple model, by the way. There's more that you could add to this, but I still think it has some purchase. But the two uh, dimensions that uh, matter here uh, for a judge trying to evaluate the utility of the shortcut are first, the allyship question, whether agencies are likely going to be aligned with the judge's views in terms of policy preferences. And then the second dimension is the certainty of that prediction over time. And this is, I think, where I would diverge from Tom Merrill's assessment uh, and I think Chris Walker's assessment of the political model uh, in the first panel, that 
dimension of uncertainty over time is part of what does the work to allow this political model to work, notwithstanding what we did see about Republican judges following uh, Chevron during the Clinton administration, for instance. This is a more slow-moving kind of thing, and it involves estimates of the uncertainty uh, around uh, this uh, prediction of allyship or opposition. So if we combine these two dimensions that judges are going to think about when assessing the utility of the doctrine, I think we can create this two-by-two two contingency table and see how the, or the dimensions interact. Right? So uh, just to walk through this really quickly, it seems like uh, Chevron deference, a relatively strong version of that, is going to prevail when you have uh, a high uh, level of certainty of future allyship between uh, the Supreme Court uh, and the president uh, over a period of time. Right? So I'm not, again, talking about individual one-off administration changes, right? because a judge would never want to uh, change the doctrine on a dime when a new administration comes to town. That would look quite unseemly. right? They're trying to make a prediction about the certainty of alignment or opposition over time. Um, so, uh, so yeah, when you have this uh, prediction that there's going to be uh, a lot of alignment over a long period of time, you're going to have Chevron deference. It makes a ton of sense to utilize the shortcut. As you start to relax that assumption of high certainty, you start introducing uncertainty, you uh, are going to move into some exceptions to Chevron, right? So what I would characterize as weak deference is really Chevron, but with exceptions like like for the Mead test, right, where we start to carve out things and treat them separately with Skidmore deference. Uh, I think then you would move, as you move into an expectation of future opposition, but with uh, still somewhat low certainty or high uncertainty, to more of a weak anti-deference position. And that might be across the board Skidmore respect uh, for agency decisions. Uh, no more uh, preservation of any domain for, for Chevron deference in its strong form. And then finally, only in a situation where you really have a, a prediction of future opposition and you're quite certain about that, uh, would you move into the direction of, say, de novo review, completely eradicating Chevron deference? And while this model is not perfect, I'm not making that claim, I do think it fits the data pretty well. Uh, it certainly fits Chevron's founding moment uh, pretty well. It also uh, fits the subsequent meatification of Chevron pretty well, uh, as rising political competition through the 90s and the 2000s uh, sort of raised un uh, uncertainty uh, among the justices uh, about uh, the predictions of allyship or opposition. It also, I think, explains why we have arrived at this moment where Chevron is on the chopping block. Uh, we have a growing rift between the court's ideological predispositions uh, and those of the elected branches, and especially the executive branch. Uh, something seems to have uh, shifted to a prediction of future opposition. Still high uncertainty, low certainty, uh, but a prediction of opposition. And that might be why we're considering uh, moving onto that right side of the table that I shared a little while ago. So the only thing that remains to be seen, I think, and which Loper Bright will tell us the answer to, is the extent to which the justices have high certainty that this is the case, or whether they have some doubts about that. And I think you know, this model, if nothing else, can maybe give us a little bit of a prediction about how the court might adjudicate between going to full de novo review versus uh, some kind of Skidmore deference. Uh, the final part of the paper tries to put this model in the context of what we know generally about politics, and uh, in, in particular, regime politics and time. Uh, it turns out that uh, each of the four possible futures of Chevron uh, is not made equal. 
Uh, allyship, I think, uh, is far more likely uh, than opposition because of regular replacement of justices by sitting presidents. This is something we know about how our political system works. It goes back to a hypothesis that Robert Dahl, a very famous political scientist uh, back in the uh, middle part of the 20th century identified. There's never much of a tension, or there, there isn't often much of a tension between the court, the Supreme Court, and presidents because of that opportunity for regular replacement of, of justices. In normal times, we know this historically, one party tends to dominate the presidency for a substantial period of time, uh, oftentimes decades at a time. For a long time, Democrats dominated the presidency through periods, and at other times, Republicans uh, dominated it. So, that makes it relatively easy to make that kind of uh, prediction, and that has natural consequences for the ideological slant of the Supreme Court. I do acknowledge in the essay that some have argued that we've arrived uh, at a new normal, uh, where this uh, pattern of regime politics, a close relationship between the president and the Supreme Court, uh, is eroding and is unlikely to prevail going forward. Uh, in other words, this current Supreme Court, these scholars argue, is out of touch with the current dominant lawmaking coalition, and that's why we're seeing a lot of these uh, splits. Uh, it's a sort of historical anomaly from the traditionally occurring pattern. I would say that it is just that, an anomaly. Uh, there's no reason to think that this is going to go uh, forward. I think it's, it's quite likely that we'll see the, the traditional pattern revert, uh, where we do see that alignment between the president uh, and the Supreme Court. Um, sure, we have partisan competition for the presidency, uh, uh, and we've had that for some time, but that primarily affects uh, the uncertainty dimension. Uh, it doesn't really undermine the pattern of uh, allyship. And it would be hard to tip things, I think, into an ex expectation of opposition, since over time, any anomalies that lead to a divergence between the ideological preferences of the court and the ideological preferences of the average president uh, will normalize. Thus, uh, if we believe that it's true that the Supreme Court will not usually for long be out of step with the executive branch on matters of policy, we ought to uh, generally expect Chevron, either with or without exceptions, uh, to prevail. To be clear, uh, it seems likely that we're going to see more uncertainty uh, uh, than uncertainty about pr uh, the predominant expectation of allyship uh, due to this continued fierce competition for the presidency. Uh, but I also argue in the essay that there might be reasons to think that this will change uh, over time, right? Uh, there are demographic advantages for Democratic presidential candidates over Republican presidential candidates. There balanced out to some degree by things like the Electoral College. Uh, political scientists write about this, uh, uh, it's very familiar literature, uh, but it, it does seem like Democrats have a little bit of uh, uh, an advantage going forward, and that could create at least a temporary mismatch, uh, and maybe one that lasts at least 10, 15 years between the Supreme Court uh, and uh, uh, the dominant uh, uh, party for the presidency. Uh, but again, overall, I see a reversion to the historical pattern, which would suggest that we're going to remain on that side of thinking about a large degree of allyship. And the question, therefore, my prediction ultimately, and again, I agree everything with what Lisa said about uh, how dangerous predictions are, uh, but if I was to predict things, I would say we're probably just going to see more of the same from the court uh, working the way that it did uh, in the Meade case and other cases uh, to carve out exceptions uh, for Chevron rather than giving, getting rid of it entirely. Uh, and I think with that, I'll go ahead and stop. Okay, thanks very much. So I was intrigued by Professor 
uh, Bressman's suggestion that rather than reflexively, you know, view everything in terms of Chevron, we should uh, we should ask: Is this a Chevron case, or is it really a State Farm case? But if 10 years from now no one's talking about Chevron, and State Farm has become the new Chevron, then wouldn't some of the same arguments that are now being brought to bear against Chevron just be repurposed against State Farm? I, I think that's right. I, so at the end of my essay, I talk about what's to become of the arbitrary and capricious test. And um, there, there are parallels um, to some of the major State Farm decisions and the major questions doctrine. Yeah. And that's where the Supreme Court has started to show some muscle under the arbitrary and capricious test when the presidential administration is doing something um, opportunistic, perhaps is a good word. Um, so if the arbitrary and capricious test ends up creeping in the way that some predict the major questions doctrine will, yes, some of these problems will arise. But here, but I just want to offer, so that's the end of this essay, sort of a courts can moderate, but let's see if the Supreme Court moderates what lower courts can do. Um, I do want to say one thing, which is that um, how agencies write their regulations matters. And this came up in the prior opinion, uh, the prior uh, panel, excuse me. So if we look not only at the statute, but we look at the substance of the agency's interpretation when there's a record, and you see exactly what the mechanics to implement the, the statute at issue in Chevron, you would see that it is not something, as John said, that a court could do. And it's not, some, it's not because the court lacks competence. It's not a, it's not a sort of they're not smart enough. Um, it is in part because they have voluminous dockets um, and, and docket pressure, uh, but it's also because they just know. If we talk separation of powers, they just know that they shouldn't be making those kinds of decisions or even second-guessing what the agency has done. And that's a, that can be a cooperative relationship um, that ends up in deference under the arbitrary and capricious test, which comes from the APA. I started off with questions. I should have asked whether any of the panelists wanted to say anything in response to what's been said before I start into my questions or audience questions. I will say one thing uh, in, in response to the political science analysis, which I think is interesting. I'm not, uh, I'm not so convinced that that drives courts. I, I mean, I've worked for judges and, and talked to judges. I, I think that doing the political calculus is hard. I think Judge Wald, you know, wasn't wrong. She was visionary. Right, because by the 1990s, people are on the left realizing Chevron is a great tool. Um, so she was she was right. This could be a great tool for regulation. It just it depends on who the president is, and she probably thought that the agencies could do a better job than her court could do. Um, so maybe that's why she supported uh, Chevron. Um, I do think one political science thing is true. Uh, we had a lot of questions last on the last panel about why not amend the APA. And the last time I was on, I think it was the last time of the time before, I was on the Hill testifying to the House about, you know, changing, getting rid of Chevron over, legislatively. Um, and, you know, there was the Republicans who were pushing a bill, and I was one of the Republican witnesses. And that was like 2015, or tw I guess it was 2016. And, and, and as soon as the 2016 election occurred, 
um, all resolve to overrule Chevron on the Republican side suddenly vanishes. And that, I think, is pretty clear if you ask why does it have to be done judicially. It's never going to be high on the president's agenda to decrease deference to his administration or her administration. That's just not going to happen. And, you know, you might say, well, the president only has a veto, supermajority could overrule. It's not going to be high on the agenda of, of his or her party either. So the, the idea that you can overrule this, or pardon me, change this legislatively, I think is fictional. And the courts have to say, well, you know, if Congress wants to go the other way, and, and, and if we're wrong in Loper, Bright, or Relentless, whatever we say, Congress can change that too. And I think that's kind of a make-weight argument that you could tack on to every non-constitutional case. Simply say, if Congress doesn't like this, you can, you can overturn it. But the courts, especially in an issue like this, are going to dominate what the law is. So just really quickly in response to that, I, I realize it's probably not a popular position in this room among so many lawyers to, to make the case that judges are political and actors. Judges. Huh? <laughs> and, and judges, yeah, no. Not except for you, yeah. right. Uh, but, but look, I mean, there, the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, you know, political scientists who have looked at the data, um, you know, it's a complicated story. It's more complicated than, uh, uh, you know, simply looking at the parties and making a decision, I like that party or I don't like that party. They're thinking more strategically and more over a long period of time. And in fact, they're even making political choices about doctrine, assuming that doctrine is going to shape the behavior of judges, and especially lower court judges, right? Um, so uh, I, I don't think it's uh, too far to say that judges are thinking politically in, a, in that sense, right? Not in the sense like, I want to reward the party that I like in this case, and I'll just forget about doctrine and do whatever I want. That's a simple attitudinal model. And that has been pretty much debunked uh, by political scientists. Uh, there's an entire body of work that takes it, uh, uh, the strategic choices about doctrine much more seriously, but we can't make any mistake that that's still political action in a sense, right? Um, uh, so uh, I, I agree with what you said. I mean, judges would never own up to this, right? Um, uh, and uh, for good reason, right? Because it has some potential impacts on legitimization of the courts. Uh, but uh, I think there's a lot of value in taking a step back and looking at the entire Chevron saga and realizing that it is part and parcel of this larger pattern that political scientists have very well documented. Uh, doesn't mean it's a conscious thing. Doesn't mean it's intentional or nefarious. It just means it's happening. Uh, and I think we do get some purchase out of uh, assuming away some of the baggage uh, of the legal model, the unadulterated legal model, and trying to think in a more realistic sense about what judges are doing. But my main point was that the political branches are going to behave politically. And you agree, agree with that, that I right? Agree you that. agree yes. with that. And yes. it's going to be very hard to overturn Chevron with any you know, thinking president Absolutely. Um, uh, in the White House. So Chevron has, has been around for uh, 40 years uh, on the stare decisis Angle. I don't know how, you know, I'm not sure that's venerable. I was in, that was almost before I started law school. I hope that's not venerable. Uh, but um, before that, there were 40 years when there was no Chevron, but there was an APA, Professor Duffy. So what, if, we, if we just went back to pre-Chevron, to the 40 years of APA practice, what would that look like? Well, you know, during the 20th century, mid-20th century to late-20th century, uh, there was something that Judge Friendly called the new federal common law. And there was an extraordinary enthusiasm for just generating judge-made law. Um, judge Friendly said something like, we're eager to generate law based on the little, the smallest bit of statutory language or the smallest bit of legislative history. We're off to the races. 
I think we've left that year behind. If we look big at big pictures, I think, you know, if you say to a court, well, you should just decide this and not, not, not concern yourself too much with, oh, some statute called the Administrative Procedure Act that was passed unanimously by Congress. That's, that's sort of a off to the side sort of thing. You really should judge this yourself. I think we're not in that era anymore. Yeah. And so even in the 20th century, the interesting thing is that, you know, Section 706, you did have pretty clear statements. So, for example, the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Administrative Law, who was authoring the House Committee report on the bill, said the following about this, about Section 706, said it requires courts to determine independently all relevant questions of law. I mean, that's pretty clear legislative history. And if you look at, you know, lower courts, when they looked at Section 706, they said things like uh, like this. I mean, this is the Ninth Circuit in 1952. In enacting the Administrative Procedure Act, Congress did not merely express a mood, that's referring sort of a, a sideways reference to a Supreme Court case, uh, that questions of the law are for the courts rather than the agencies to decide. It's so enacted with explicit phraseology. You can't find a case pre-Chevron that says, oh, 706, that means deference. Um, you just can't find that. You find actually multiple cases that when they read Section 706, say it's de novo review. The most amazing thing I found in writing this article, which was more about this general phenomenon of, of administrative common law that displaces the APA, uh, is that even after Chevron, lower courts, when they're actually called to the attention of Section 706, they interpreted it as de novo review. In other words, if you didn't mention Chevron and just said, well, wait a minute, look at 706, that's statutory text, what does it mean? Courts repeatedly said, oh, that's, de no that's a codification of de novo review. So you have these ships passing in the night of, you know, what does 706 mean and, you know, what does the common law doctrine mean? You know, maybe one way to solve the stare decisis conundrum is say, well, in any case that, you know, either the APA doesn't apply or um, where nobody cites the APA, then Chevron applies. How about that as a solution? Well, then, you know, that's exactly what happened in Chevron, and that's what the court decided. What should we, what should be the rule of deference if we have no APA? That's what they decided, and that's all they decided. And if we do, if somebody does cite the APA, well, then we have to pay attention to the APA. You know, it seems like part of the frustration for, for example, the, the Loper-Bright petitioners is that under Chevron, what we reasonableness is too low of a bar. Reasonableness, if you think about con law, it's like rational basis. It's it's almost no review at all. It's abdication. So if we if the Supreme Court were to abandon the Chevron reasonableness standard, but realizing that de novo, and if they weren't inclined to do de novo review because of some of the reasons that were expressed on the first panel, it's it's hard. It creates circuit splits. It's a lot of work for everyone. What would be the the next best standard? I think that um, there's actually um, a split in the lower courts, and this is not my work. This is, again, um, the excellent empirical work of Ken and Chris showing that um, there's a variety of interpretations of reasonableness, yeah. and sometimes it's arbitrary and capricious review-like, and sometimes it's a free pass, and sometimes it's hypertextualism. So it would really help if the yeah. Supreme Court Kick told on. lower courts the, where, where to go. I think the, my, my reading is that the predominant view is the arbitrary and capricious review. But I've got a really, really long footnote in this little bitty essay uh, that lays out the disagreements or, or um, sort of weak points, I would describe them as, uh, in, the, in the lower courts. 
uh, let alone in the scholarship, where there's very much discussion. So I think the idea that Chevron deference is a free pass to the agency, that's a toss up. Um, and we could surely use some clarity on the question. Professor Duffy, you said at one point we should look at delegation de novo, which sounds like a path eventually to revisiting the non-delegation doctrine. The more courts look at delegation de novo, does that, I mean, is that fair? Well, it, 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 it does not, it does not, no, but, because I, I actually think that even under Justice Gorsuch's view of the non-delegation doctrine, a delegation like the EPA has, which is to fill in a reasonable definition of stationary source, passes with flying colors. I just think the, the, the court in looking de novo at de delegations will find more variety than perhaps they, yeah. that they think, that Chevron thinks. And I think that's the crucial thing. Now, if you give too much power to an agency, then I think you do bump against the non-delegation doctrine. And I think that's one of the reasons why you should interpret you know, even, a, even the, on the far extreme of power, these super rulemaking powers that give the agency the power to override clear language, to modify it, I think that's a really powerful reason, the non-delegation doctrine is a really powerful reason using the canon of constitutional avoidance to simply interpret that the way the court did in the FCC case, which says, you know, modify means small change. And they, they basically said the same thing in Biden versus Nebraska too. And I think that's right, because if you say, oh, modify means rewrite the statute, and that's okay, um, then you, you have a very serious uh, non-delegation doctrine. But I think, and you know, in the vast majority of administrative statutes, um, we're pretty comfortably within the range of the, certainly the modern non-delegation yeah. doctrine. Um, but even Gus Justice Gorsuch's uh, uh, test really just, you know, it, it gets off a few statutes like the, you know, the Sonra statute of registering where there's no standard at all, registering um, sex offenders retroactively. It, it picks off a few things like that, but not not too many uh, things in the uh, EPA and stuff like that. But I, if it picks off a little bit more, I'm okay with that. I think the focus should be delegation. Okay, we've spent almost all of our time before getting to audience questions. Do we have some? Oh, 10 minutes, good. Do we have some audience questions before lunch? Well, you're going to get all three relentless attorneys. I'm the third, Kara Rollins. Um, on the what should replace it, one thing I'm always drawn to is haven't the states already answered that question since 2018, Wisconsin Tetratech? You've seen an increase in Supreme Courts rejecting deference, particularly on the constitutional aspect as being incompatible with the state constitutions. You've seen constitutional amendments in Wisconsin, Arizona, and Florida expressly rejecting it. And as far as I'm aware, the sky hasn't fallen. And for those not familiar sort of with the state deference regimes, California has never applied a Chevron type deference. So I guess sort of the question is, does a replacement have to be provided when we have all of this case law out there sort of answering this question already? in the states as, an, as a poli-sci person, sort of the, the test of democracy at the, the, you know, testing that out. So a really quick thought in response to that is, I'm not sure the states and the federal side are comparable in very important ways. And I, this gets to some things that were brought up on the first panel. Uh, you know, a, a really big problem with overturning Chevron and replacing it with something else is how you deal with the inevitable circuit splits, um, the ine inevitable disagreement that you will see across a very large nation with very diverse preferences, very diverse policies. Um, 
So that, I think, is, is a huge hurdle that it really is, I mean, it's still there to some degree uh, in states, uh, but the, the, pan, or the, uh, the problem is really, it has boundaries around it, right? Uh, and uh, and it's, I'm a little hesitant to, to read too much into the experience of the states uh, in implementing you know, some alternatives to Chevron and then simply saying, well, the sky didn't fall there. Uh, it's really not comparable on that level, I think. I think also, um you know, Congress legislates against Chevron. Agencies implement against Chevron. It's been that way since Chevron, which is to say 40 years. So the, the experience of the states might um, <coughs> speak to workability, I suppose, of a new rule. But if we're talking about delegation, and we're talking about delegation under specific statutes, and in particular under specific federal statutes, um, I, I think that you know, congressional intent control, controls, not uh, state intent. I think it's a great point, but um, uh, and should be covered in the briefing of, of the cases that are at the court right now. So I mean that it seems to me important. It, it doesn't answer some of the questions, but it does answer the workability question. Again, I don't think that you'll get lots of splits because I think the big picture question of is there delegated authority here could be answered at that level, and then you just have arbitrary and capricious review. Um, which does lead to some splits, but there's actually mechanisms to, to reduce splits. Um, so for example, you can have consolidated litigation against a, um, there's a procedure to get consolidated litigation in one, in one circuit when there's judicial review of a rule. So you're gonna get, you know, sort of nationwide jurisdiction, or nationwide decision that's gonna uh, bind on the agency. And if the agency loses, the SG can always decide to take it to the Supreme Court. But I, I think actually, the deferential standard in um, in 7062A is going to be um, is going to control a lot of cases and, and won't lead to very many splits. On the mechanism, really quickly, uh, for uh, constraining uh, circuit splits and, and the like, I mean, I think one big variable that we don't have a good sense of right now is you know how much uh, the Supreme Court is going to tamp down on the shadow docket, right? Um, I mean, this is a this is a game changer in a lot of ways for the strategy of how the Supreme Court relates to the lower courts. Um, um, and it greatly increases the capacity of the Supreme Court to resolve some of these questions. But we already have seen a lot of dissatisfaction around the shadow dock, and in particular, the use of the nationwide injunction. So I think it's a big unknown what the court will ultimately do uh, if it's ever squarely faced with those questions. It seems likely that there will be some kind of tamping down of those practices, which makes it very difficult for the Supreme Court to weigh in in the vast majority of cases. Or they can use summary affirmances, which is um, even more a concern, I think, so that the shadow docket would end up with a lot of summary uh, dispositions. And uh, historically, that, that norm has been really strong. Very, very few, very, very rare, egregious misapplication uh, of, of existing precedent. So um, regardless of, of how we interpret that, I think an explosion on the shadow docket, not only with respect to nationwide injunctions, but with respect to summary affirmances is something that I, I think the court will have to think about in terms of its public perception. Or maybe they can hear more cases. Or they can <laughs> That would mean they'd have to work a lot harder. I know, that's not something to add to the briefs and Loper Bright, <laughs> anybody who's the petitioner's side, that probably is not the, the winning argument to convince the judges to, justices to overturn Chevron. All right, I'm told we have five minutes. Can we try to get two questions in that five minutes? Professor Merrill has one. For John. Um, so uh, I agree with you completely that the courts need to decide to know whether the agency has delegated authority. That's one of my big themes. Uh, right. I, do, I don't think, however, that there was no uh, statutory interpretation question in Chevron. Um, the respondents who had won, of course, in the DC Circuit uh, 
argued strenuously that the flexibility that the regulation gave to the states under the non-attainment provisions to choose the bubble concept or the uh, individual uh, aperture concept uh, was that this was inconsistent with statute. And, and the statute for the non-attainment provisions did not de define stationary source. It just said that it was a facility that emits more than 250 tons per year. Um, but the respondent said, well, there, Section 111, which is another stationary source provision, does have a definition of stationary source, which is that it's any building, structure, facility, or installation. And I guess their argument was that under the Nositrius canon, the word facility, which was the operative provision under the non-attainment provisions, should be defined in accordance with building structure or installation, which is the narrow sort of aperture kind of right. understanding. So there was a legal issue. It was rejected by Justice Stevens. He said, well, it could go one way or the other. But it was a legal legal question, and they ended up deferring to the agency. Um, on the um, the lack of enthusiasm during the Trump, uh, after the Trump election for getting rid of uh, Chevron, uh, you will recall that the Separation of Powers Restoration Act did pass the House in 2017 and 18, and I guess in 2023. Now, maybe with not a lot of enthusiasm, I don't know, but they did pass it three times. Do you, but do you think do you think the president, any president, would sign that into law? Well, the Senate didn't go along, so we don't know. But yeah, we don't know. I, you know, uh, no, I would and also, so. the Trump the Trump Justice Department seemed very, very re reluctant to use Chevron in their Supreme Court brief. Well, that's true. I think I think that this is one pushback against the political science that that things, at least in the courts and and maybe even in the political process, have a certain, you know, get a certain rationale behind them, and that 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 carries through longer term, um, and that people maybe they pick their issues strategically because they know a, a Democratic uh, non, uh, administration can come in later on, but there's sort of a uh, an intellectual history to some issues that carries on. I think that the legal issue, you know, it, it, when you say that, that that the court decided it in Chevron, I I, I think that's a little inaccurate because the court said it's up to the agency. So if a new administration comes in and, and issues a much more narrow definition of, of source, the very point of Chevron is that's okay too. And that's why I think that unless you find a delegation of power, which of course the agency had there, but hypothetically, if there was no delegation of rulemaking power, I think and all you have to do is interpret what stationary source means that it's fundamentally inconsistent to use a Chevron framework uh, to say it, it, that that can be consistent with Section 706 because you're not deciding the question. You're saying it's not our choice. It's the agency's choice if it's a pure question of law. I think if you say what, uh, what you know, certainly Robert said in his dissent in the city of Arlington, that you first have to and it's a respecting of Section 706. Look to see whether there's a delegation of power. Then I think you're you're respecting Section 706 because you're saying we are giving you de novo review of the law. The law is the in, within reason, within a reasoned decision-making framework. The agency gets to make the call, and that is the correct interpretation of the of the Clean Air Act. Okay, we're done. Uh, thank you very much. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center.